going to Hollywood and making it big? Well, these are the stories of people who have made it, just in a different way. They're the unsung heroes behind the screens that make movies and television come to life. Welcome to the Right Scuff Podcast, where we talk about films and interview those who are just starting their careers to some of the biggest names in production and post-production. Our mission is to inspire you through the true stories of people who have achieved their dreams. We'll be talking to Foley artists, screenwriters, sound editors, picture editors, the list goes on. And for film fans, we'll be focusing on sound and what it takes to create Foley. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a writer. And I'm John, a professional Foley artist in the film business for over 40 years. He's worked on over 500 films and is a 37-time nominated and 9-time MPSC winner for big titles such as Inception, The Matrix, and The Dark Knight. You can find us online at therightscuff.com and please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Hello there and welcome to another chapter of The Right Scuff and today we have really one of the most wonderful people that I know uh, professionally and personally, uh, Randy Tom with us today at The Right Scuff. And of course, Sarah and I are really excited and we're uh, basically just going to jump right in and say thank you, Randy, for joining us. And I'm going to ask a couple questions here. And of course, uh, the first one is, are you now or have you, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I've always been a member of the Communist Party. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, for inviting me. I, I've, I've uh, checked out the the uh, podcast and it's very cool and I'm honored to be one of your guests. Well, thank no, you. seriously, thank you. And I, I apologize for being kind of silly and I'm really, now I'm going to ask a, a straight question. And if you, if you wouldn't mind, can you kind of take us back to the beginning where, what got you involved in, in the arts or at least what, what was it in childhood? Was there a moment or moments or kind of tell, take us back and how did it happen? what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> uh, I had no idea that I would work in media or work in storytelling, uh, certainly not sound, I would say, uh, until I was in my um, early 20s. Uh, I grew up in Louisiana and often in uh, rural places, and so I was you know, wandering through the hills and the dales, not that there were that many hills in Louisiana, but there were a few. And I guess the only sound training or ear training that I got early on was just listening to the sounds of the forest because I would literally spend many hours of certainly summer days and occasional winter days when I wasn't going to school just by myself building forts in the forest and uh, wandering around with a BB gun and and I could hear, you know, squirrels up in the trees and whippoorwills uh, calling in the distance. And so I think, you know, it sounds funny, but I think in a way it did kind of train my brain in terms of being aware of the world of sound. Was there a moment then past that where you, I don't know, went to a movie or was there, was a, was there a, a fork in the road that somehow got you here? Yeah, there was. Um, uh, I 
was going to college and thought that I might want to be a physicist, but I was never really good enough at math to be a physicist. <laughs> so um, I, for that and other reasons, I, I dropped out of college. This is uh, you know, 1969, 1970, and just started roaming around the country being a hippie and hitchhiking and you know, living here and there and uh, wandered into the town of Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is where a college called Antioch College uh, was and still is. And in those days, it was certainly one of the most liberal left-wing colleges in the country, which is odd because it's in southern Ohio, which is not one of the most liberal or left-wing areas of the country. And uh, I fell in love with the little town of Yellow Springs. It's called that because there, uh, there are some springs in town that have uh, uh, iron in the water. And so it really kind of looks like rust where the water comes out of the earth. So it's really orange springs, not yellow springs. And though I wasn't a student at Antioch College, um, I heard that they were looking for people to work in the campus radio station. And you didn't have to be a student to do that. And so I wandered into the little radio station, uh, WYSO, and volunteered to do things in the radio station. And before this, I hadn't done anything connected with sound at all. But I knew enough about you know, physics to have some idea of how the equipment worked and started doing, uh, you know, setting up microphones and eventually started producing little pieces for national public radio and working on little radio plays, et cetera. And um, I had never had a regular job of any kind, and, but I was hired eventually by the radio station to do the same kinds of things. And I became the program director and so I was in radio for public radio for about five years, first there in Ohio. And then I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area to Berkeley and got involved with KPFA, public radio in Berkeley, and did similar things. And so this brings us to the mid-70s. And I was a film buff even then. And uh, I, I think it was seeing the first Star Wars film that uh, convinced me that I wanted to work in movie sound. And uh, so I started trying to figure out how to do that. And there still is no prescribed method for somebody breaking into the movie business and no matter what your craft is you can certainly go to a film school or you can go to a school that'll give you a certificate in audio recording or music recording or uh, sound design but having that piece of paper certainly doesn't guarantee you a job anywhere it still is and it certainly was then when I was beginning to to get involved, a matter of luck, finding somebody to make a connection with who you can apprentice to. And uh, so I was, after about a year of knocking on doors that were politely shut in my face, uh, where I would say, hi, I'd love to do sound for movies. And they would say, well, sorry, we're not hiring today. Or everybody was always very nice. Nobody ever said, you know, who do you think you are to knock on my door? And a year or so of that, and I made a very lucky phone call to this guy named Walter Murch. 
Walter had gone to USC, University of Southern California, with George Lucas. And they, along with Francis Coppola, had come up to Northern California, to San Francisco, and formed this company called American Zoetrope to, to make movies. They wanted to make uh, revolutionary, cutting-edge, avant-garde movies. And... Uh, by the time I showed up, um, they had made The Godfather and they had made American Graffiti and they were, Coppola and Walter Murch were in the process of making a movie called Apocalypse Now. Mm. And so I, I called Walter out of the blue because I had knew somebody who had taken a little seminar that he had taught at the San Francisco Art Institute. And they said he's a nice guy and helps people, you know, advises them about the movie biz. And so I called him out of the blue, somehow got his phone number. I don't remember how. And I said, you know, I've done work in public radio. I've recorded music, done lots of sound work. I've never worked on a film before, but I'd love to do that. And he said, why don't you come down and we'll talk about it. And at that point, they were remixing American Graffiti into stereo. It had originally been released in just with a mono soundtrack, and they were making a stereo version of it. And so I sat all day one day and watched them do this. And at the end of the day, Walter said, uh, why don't you write me an essay about what you saw today? And so I think, well, I guess this is how people get into the movie business. You write an essay. <laughs> <Writing essays. laughs> That's fantastic. <clears throat> and I don't remember exactly what I wrote. And he doesn't have the copy because I've asked him. <laughs> uh, but he liked what I wrote. And so he hired me to work on my first film, this little project called Apocalypse Now. <laughs> and so that was my film school. I worked on it for over a year. And it was, I couldn't have chosen a better film school or a better, you know, catbird seat to observe how movies get made because uh, their ambitions for Apocalypse Now were very high. And I saw everything and heard everything that possibly could go right or go wrong on a film. And... In a way, the whole process was like being in a film school because they really encouraged everybody to do a little bit of everything and learn about everybody else's craft, et cetera. So it was, uh, uh, it was really kind of magical, magnificent experience. And my whole career since then has been informed by what I learned on that project. It begs a couple of questions then. I mean, so you say you did a little bit of everything. Did you, in fact, then, I guess, record sound? Did you cut sound effects and work with dialogue? And wow, that's, was there a moment then that maybe recording on like a 50 caliber machine gun or something where you thought, uh-oh, if this goes wrong, we're in trouble? Oh, there were lots of moments like that. <laughs> um, we... Uh, I'll, I'll carry the story a little further, which will illuminate maybe the part of the answer to, to that question. So I'm working on Apocalypse Now, uh, basically being one of Walter Murch's assistants. And, and Walter was one of the film editors, what we call a picture editor. Um, and by picture editor, you don't mean he, he's only concerned with visual images. That means that he's the editor of the picture as in the film. Um, and 
picture editors always have a lot to do with the sound in the films that they're working on also. So Walter was one of the picture editors and he was also supervising the sound for Apocalypse. And we needed lots of uh, Vietnam era battle sounds of various kinds, helicopters, 50 caliber machine guns, explosions of all kinds, etc. And it, we, there really weren't many of those recordings in any of the existing libraries at the time. So we had to go out and make lots of new recordings on our own. And at the same time, this guy named Ben Burt was working with George Lucas on a sequel to American Graffiti called More American Graffiti. And that film had a Vietnam War sequence in it also. So they also needed those sounds. And so we, and they were located in Marin County and we were working on Apocalypse Now in San Francisco. So we were about 20 miles from each other. And we decided to mount a kind of joint expedition uh, to go out and collect these sounds that we needed. And we went up to uh, Coppola's winery property in the Napa Valley. And he owned hundreds of acres up there. And some of it was vineyards and some of it was just countryside. And we arranged for munitions experts and pyrotechnic experts, et cetera, to come and bring weapons of various kinds and grenades and things that would explode and burst into flames. And so these two teams of sound people working on different movies showed up, you know, on the same day to record all of these things and share all the recordings. So that's really how I got to know Ben Burt, who was also uh, famous by that time for having created most of the iconic sounds for Star Wars and Indiana, and Indiana Jones films. And so at the end of Apocalypse Now, um, I had a conversation with Ben and he asked me if I'd be interested in working on the next film he was beginning to work on, which was The Empire Strikes Back, the second Star Wars film. And so that's how I got connected to Lucasfilm and what was then called Sprocket Systems, which became Skywalker Sound. So now you're with uh, Ben Burt. Uh, did you work then directly with him or? Yeah, I was essentially Ben's assistant on okay. uh, one of his assistants on The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, I, on Apocalypse Now, I had spent about half my time recording sound effects, you know, recording helicopters and guns and the little fly that you hear buzzing in the beginning of Apocalypse Now in the window when Martin Sheen is looking out his hotel window. I spent a week recording that fly. Oh. <laughs> I, um, I had no idea you know, how one goes about recording flies, and so I just had to figure it out. And I got a butterfly net and hung out behind various restaurants in San Francisco, <laughs> collected flies. And then Walter wanted the sound of the fly buzzing against various surfaces like glass and screen and wood. And so I literally built this little fly house out with all of those surfaces in it, put each of the flies in there. And some flies were much better performers than others. <laughs> uh, I don't think any of them were in the union, but that's okay. 
and spent a week recording these flies. And you barely hear it in the movie, but every time I'm with somebody screening the film, I say, got to listen for those flies because I spent so much time recording them. So I spent about half my time on Apocalypse recording sound effects in the field and about half uh, assisting in the mix of the film. Most big feature films these days are mixed for five or six weeks. Apocalypse Now was mixed for nine months. So there was, it was another wonderful opportunity for me to learn about how films are mixed, etc., by sitting in that room, you know, watching Walter Murch and Mark Berger and Richard Beggs, who were the re-recording mixers on the film, do what they did. And so another reason Apocalypse Now was especially interesting for me was because I got to do those two very different kinds of jobs, put a portable recorder over my shoulder and go here and there collecting sounds and also sitting in the mix. On Empire Strikes Back, um, I spent almost all my time in the field recording sounds and uh, just a little bit in the studio helping to edit the sounds, etc. but a, a lot of field recording. So, for instance, the, the main sound of the Imperial Walkers, those big four-legged robots um, that the bad guys ride around in and Empire Strikes Back, um, I found a huge metal cutting machine over in Berkeley in a factory that made this really interesting multi-syllabic, you know, kind of sound. And as soon as I heard it, I thought, wow, that's great raw material for this uh, Imperial Walker. And sure enough, Ben loved it. And so that's the main thing you hear as these walkers uh, move around the, the surface of the earth. That's great. And of course, at that time, um, you were in San Anselmo with uh, Sprocket Systems, correct? Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, what we now call the ranch or Skywalker Sound was not in, in existence yet. That's right. Uh, what was called Sprocket Systems started in a little building, probably uh, you know, 2,500 square foot building at most, um, which I think now is lawyers' offices. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, we all said that uh, the staff was so small that everybody who worked there could go to lunch in George's Camaro. <laughs> I love and, that. And we were there uh, during the work on Empire Strikes Back. And uh, not too long after we began work on the third Star Wars film, Return of the Jedi. And we moved... Between Empire and Jedi, we moved from that little building in San Anselmo to a more appropriate and bigger building that would house more people in the town of San Rafael, California, which is about uh, you know, 10 miles from San Anselmo. And we were there for several years. And then when we needed to expand even more, we moved to what's called Skywalker Ranch. Uh, which is property that George had bought back in the late 1970s, uh, and we moved in in 1985-86. Wow, so you were really here from the inception, if you will. I was here before there was a here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we talked about uh, 
uh, Return of the Jedi. Now, you also were a music mixer on that. Is that correct? I was a music mixer on Return of the Jedi, yeah. How did that come about? Well, George and Ben uh, felt strongly about uh, training and bringing along, you know, talent, kind of homegrown talent, rather than whenever possible, rather than resorting to hiring, you know, highly skilled professionals who'd been doing it for decades to come in from somewhere else. And I'd certainly done music work in my radio years and had and recorded a lot of music and engineered live broadcasts of music, et cetera. So I knew a little bit about music and, and how to mix music. And uh, then because he had been fabricating all these sound effects for Jedi, uh, it made sense for him to be the sound effects mixer. And so I was hired to be the music mixer. And I think one of the funniest things that happened while I was mixing the music on Jedi was one day John Williams visited our mix. And he there was one sequence that he wanted something very specific to be done with the music on. And we made a couple of passes through it and I wasn't doing what he wanted done. And so he walked down in front of the mixing console. So he was sitting between me and the screen that the picture was on. And he literally started conducting me with his hands and fingers as if I were a musician. And it worked. Uh, in you know, the first pass, I was able to do exactly what he wanted. That's fantastic. That yeah. is, is what a yeah. great story. Oh yeah. My gosh. <laughs> Uh, and I, I, you know, admire him so much. He's so such an iconic composer, really one of the greatest film composers in, or any kind of composer in, in music history that uh, I'm still a little stunned that that happened, but it did. Love stories like that. That that's fantastic. And I'm going to jump around now and ask a couple other things too. And or certainly, if you want to pick up a timeline from the ranch, that's fine. You've won two Academy Awards, one for The Right Stuff and, of course, The Incredibles. Um, on The Right Stuff, was there a particular challenge in that film that was difficult for you? Because, of course, a lot of it was, you know, in, not a lot of it, but at least in my memory, what really stuck out was the flying sequences or, you know, trying to break the barrier, just, just how it was man against machine. Was there anything you remember from that was that really strikes you that that's a good story? There were so many tough things about doing the sound for the right stuff. Um, Phil Kaufman, who directed the movie, uh, had very high ambitions about what the sound could be and and lots of wonderful ideas and was always pushing us to be you know as experimental as we could. One of the things that uh, Tom Wolfe had written in the book that the movie was based on was about this thing that he called the press insect. And the idea was that the press journalists who followed the astronauts around were like a swarm of locusts. And because of the clicking of the cameras and the yelling of questions and etc. And 
so Phil really wanted to embody this notion that the press were kind of invading the space of the of the astronauts as if they were locusts and said, let's see if we can do that sonically. And so one of the big sound design challenges uh, for me and for others who were working on the right stuff was to come up with this sound for the, the press insect. And then begs the next question, what did you use? <laughs> we used all kinds of things. We certainly used actual recordings of locusts and cicadas and other similar katydids and other insects. We recorded lots and lots of camera clicks and camera motors. We did sounds vocally that were a little like, you know, insect sounds. And so what you hear in the final version of the movie is a, a mix of all those things. And, and it's a testament to the way sound works in movies that when you see the movie, I think very few people would realize that's what they're hearing. You just kind of buy it and it makes sense. And you may realize that there's some kind of slightly stylized sound there, but it would never occur to anybody, oh, those are insect sounds or et cetera. Uh, you've seen the movie and you know it obviously didn't stand out for you. And that's absolutely what we were hoping for. That it would be subtle enough so it wouldn't call too much attention to itself, but it would still have its... I, emotional impact. I have to say, I've seen it probably four times, and you're right. I never, ever noticed that, so to speak, and knew that. Of course, to some degree, that's the testament to the craft because it's something that's supporting the storyline. It's not hitting you over the head. Yeah. So, and uh, in some of the, the sequences where Chuck Yeager is trying to uh, break the sound barrier, <clears throat> um, we needed to convey the idea that this was extremely dangerous, that the, the, uh, the craft that he was in could explode at any moment. And so we started with recordings of actual planes and rockets, etc. But we wanted to push it further than that in terms of drama. And so if you listen very carefully to... To those sequences, uh, you'll also hear recordings of elephants trumpeting, squealing, etc., mixed in with the engine sounds. Also, things like uh, chalk squeaking on chalkboards. At one point, I, I went to a we did some recording for the right stuff at Edwards Air Force Base down in Southern California which by the time we were doing these recordings, much of which had been abandoned. And so I went into lots of um, old buildings just to record the sound of my feet walking around and I could push chairs across floors and that sort of thing. And one of them had a blackboard in it, a pretty large blackboard, and there was still chalk there. And I just started writing something and the chalk squeaked. And, I th and as we all know, chalk squeaking on blackboards is one of the most irritating sounds in the world. And being in this mode of, you know, sound designer thinking about 
how sounds affect people, it occurred to me that if I could get an extended version of one of those squeaks that would last for at least a few seconds, it might be a great element for one of these engines that feels like it's about to explode. So if you listen to some of those those X1 sequences in the right stuff, uh, you'll also hear chalk squeaking across a chalkboard. Wow. That, that is fabulous. I mean... Well, I, I'm going to have to watch it again now just to, <laughs> to pick up those, uh, those subliminal, if I can say, to some degree effects, but yet effective. Um, well, then, of course, I mentioned The Incredibles, too. So that's, in a sense, if I may say, a little bit of a different challenge and yet the same. In other words, it's, a, it's an animated film. And, um, uh, uh, you know, from that, too, was there something that surprised you? When you started that going, hmm, gee, I didn't really expect to have to have this on my plate. And yet it was, you know, as we know, it's a great job. Well, thanks. Um, the Incredibles was certainly the first um, you know, big budget animated film that I had worked on. I, I had worked on Brad Bird's previous movie, The Iron Giant, which is a wonderful film, by the way. Um, but it didn't have quite the the budget or the scope of The Incredibles. And uh, it was a huge challenge, partly because Gary Rydstrom, who's a you know, contemporary sound designer, a little younger than I am, um, is you know, one of the best sound designers in the world. And he had done the sound for all the previous Pixar movies, but he wasn't going to be able to work on The Incredibles and so I felt a big load on my shoulders because Gary had done such amazing work on these other films that uh, I didn't want to you know, let Pixar down by, uh, by not doing as good a job. So I was nervous, uh, as I say, never having done a, you know, a big budget animated film before. And it's funny that one of the reasons that producers and directors hire somebody you know like me at this point in my career is they think well he's been around for a long time he's done lots of kinds of films surely he knows already how to do what we're going to ask him to do but the funny thing is you never know exactly how you're going to do what you're being asked to do for a given movie it's no matter how long you've been doing it in a sense you almost have to start from zero figuring out what to do, because if you try to just use techniques and approaches that you've used on previous movies, it's not going to be interesting. You're just going to be repeating something you've already done and nobody really wants that. <laughs> so it's always a, a, a challenge. You always feel a lot of pressure going in. You always think you're going to fail on one level or another, and you do fail in some ways. But if you keep at it, typically you, you, you fail less and less over time during the project and it all turns out okay. But yeah, there was a lot of pressure doing The Incredibles. And, and I'll tell you about maybe the, the, the most frustrating sound that I had to do, uh, which you would think maybe wouldn't be such a frustrating sound. Uh, at one point, uh, the... the uh, a group of bad guys uh, fires uh, essentially machine guns at the teenage girl character in the movie. Um, 
and she uh, has this kind of bubble around her, which causes all these shots to bounce off. And I tried every sound I could think of to try to make it work for the sound of these, you know, projectiles or laser blasts or bullets or whatever they were bouncing off of this shield. And I was never really satisfied with it. And Brad was never satisfied with it. And I was working on lots of other sounds at the same time. But over a period of, you know, two or three months, every few days, I would come back with a new set of sounds for this particular thing. And nothing ever seemed to work. And I finally realized that what would make it work, and I tried literal, you know, ricochets. I I tried... uh, basketballs, bouncing, etc. And nothing seemed to work. I finally realized that the funnier, the more comedic I made it, the better it worked and the more Brad liked the sound. And so at that point, I, you know, as I said, I tried basketballs. I I started experimenting with even goofier sounding, going boing and uh ringing sounds and balloons, et cetera, squeaking balloons, et cetera. And suddenly it it started making sense to me and making sense to Brad as the kind of moment that he wanted in the movie. And uh, almost every film has at least one example like that of a, a sound that you think will be reasonably straightforward to do that is the toughest sound of all i i believe that i um i'm gonna jump up to or maybe back i'm not sure in the histronics uh you worked on castaway now there's a scene when we're in the fedex plane where all of a sudden there's a huge hit of turbulence and one of the pilots in the flight deck hits their head um and then all of a sudden it's 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 a it's a terror ride if you will to impacting the ocean and I'll tell you, that is, to me, one of the most terrifying scenes I've ever seen in a, in a, in a film, just because the way the sound made that scene live. Was there anything that you know of that was done that might have been a little different uh, or just straight ahead, like we just put in, you know, the alarms of terrain, that type of thing? I'm, I just wonder. No. No, I'm kidding. There <laughs> Uh, it's another movie that we did a huge amount of experimenting on. And in the sequence, there are several, you know, if you think of potential sounds that could happen in that scenario, uh, you could think of it like, you know, musical orchestration in terms of different kinds of sounds that can contribute musically or sound designedly to being to making it seem real on the one hand but also making it seem as you know emotionally powerful as possible and if you actually had a set of microphones in that plane as it was heading toward crashing into the ocean the recording that you get would get might not be nearly as interesting 
uh, or as really as evocative of that event as you would think. And so we're always kind of playing fast and loose with realism and naturalism in a sequence like that. You always want sounds that are plausible and sort of tip their hat to the authenticity of what's going on. But you don't want to be straitjacketed by authenticity. You you want to, the poetic license to play with the sounds in a creative way so that it becomes even more powerful and more evocative than an actual recording of those events would be. So in that sequence, you have the engine of the plane to play with as one part of your orchestra, let's say. You have the fuselage, the metal structure of the plane to to play with. And it occurred to me, you know, maybe it's vibrating in various ways all the way down. Um, because the you know the end maybe the engine isn't working the way it should and things are getting loose on the in the superstructure of the plane and so pieces of metal are banging into each other and it's vibrating etc. Uh, you have the sound of wind as it's uh, blowing around the airplane and through the airplane etc. etc. and so. You try to come up with sounds that are plausible for all of those things. In terms of the engine, um, there's a, a, a bit of film sound language that's been established in, through the history of movies that as a plane is diving toward a crash, that it emits um, a tonal sound that rises in pitch the closer it gets to crashing, which really doesn't have anything to do with the truth <laughs> of what an, a plane engine would really sound like. But it's useful to us as sound designers because it so happens that a, a tonal sound that rises in pitch over time also creates a sense of anxiety and drama. That's fascinating. Mm. And, you know, if it gets high enough, it's going to explode. And so I had to come up with some kind of, uh, you know, it's a jet airplane that they're in. So I had to come up with a kind of turbine whistle or whine sound that would continuously rise in pitch through the whole thing. And likewise, the plane is vibrating more and more and more as it goes faster and faster. And so we got a, a semi, an empty semi tractor trailer truck, the trailer part of it, that was, you know, old and beat up already. And we just started banging things around on the walls of this empty uh, truck and shaking the truck to the degree that we could and attaching metal objects to the inside of the walls of the trailer and vibrating those and banging on those. And we did the same thing with plastic pieces of plastic because in that plane, you'd probably encounter a lot of plastic also. Uh, and just as the whine of the engines needed to increase in pitch over time, um, I was thinking that maybe if the vibrating sounds got faster and faster over time, that would also increase the tension. So we found um, a, a paint shaker, these devices that, uh, that take 
cans of paint that have been sitting around a long time and shake them so that the paint inside, you know, house paint, are this, the paint inside is thoroughly mixed. And we modified it so that we could control exactly how fast the vibration of the shaking was. And so then we attached it to various pieces of metal that we knew would resonate and ring, et cetera, and gradually turned the frequency higher and higher and higher. So it's all that kind of stuff. But that's just amazing and fascinating to me. And I think the audience too, because, you know, as you say, it's, it's what's realistic and yet it's what it's, it's realistic and yet it's what's uh, within the realm of, of uh, the artistic too, you know, the, to bring the drama to it. And that, that's, that's great. That, that, that really is great. Now you, on another note, you have worked with Mel Brooks. Do you have any stories about Mel? And Mel is such a treasure and such a hilarious guy. Uh, I, I worked with Mel Brooks on Spaceballs. And uh, he sought us out. Um, obviously, he knew that we had done Star Wars. And he was going to do this parody of Star Wars and various other space sci-fi movies called Spaceballs. And when we initially got the call from Mel, of course, you know, we all said, absolutely. And by the way, Gary Rydstrom worked on that also. And, but we were a little afraid that George would feel uncomfortable about it because he's, you know, making fun of space sci-fi movies. But George was fine with it and much to his credit. And uh, Mel... uh, just couldn't have been funnier and more pleasant to be around. Every We would go to lunch together every day, uh, often to one particular little restaurant in San Rafael. And, of course, most of the people in the restaurant knew who he was, and he was always performing. He had everybody in the restaurant, you know, rolling on the floor, laughing, and eventually we'd have to say, Mel, we really have to go back and work now because he was, you know, he had an audience there. So he's, he was very happy. And I, I don't know if I can remember a specific, you know, hilarious moment from being with Mel, but I remember the whole thing was just delightful. Well, that's, that is great, you know, because he truly, as you say, I, I had worked with him once too and just was amazingly funny, always on and yet in a way that just, you, you loved it. And I guess then the adjunct question to that is, was there one director? I mean, you've worked with many great directors, and I'm not trying to not remember the other ones. Is there one in particular? Is there one in particular though that maybe this person here, she really just got it? You know, you guys, you mm-hmm. two were on the same wavelength, and and they would start a sentence, and you would finish it, or vice versa. Well, fairly recently in my career, that certainly happened with uh, Alejandro Inarritu. Uh, I was lucky to be uh, asked to work on The Revenant, uh, the movie that he did with Leonardo DiCaprio. And uh, from, you know, the first meeting that Alejandro and I had, we were, you know, fish- finishing each other's sentences and and really seemed to be on the same page. And it's fantastic when that happens because one of the reasons that directors tend to hire the same people over and over again is that often it's very difficult to establish a language with somebody and uh, make sure that 
they know what you expect and how to communicate what you expect. And so once you get that kind of rapport with somebody, um, it's, a, it's a shame to waste it. And so that's one of the reasons that people often work again and again for the same director. We get on to our last two questions. Thank you for hanging in there. Um, and I would just say really one thing, of course, this podcast, really what it's about is what advice would you have for any man or young man or a young woman that wants to get into the business? Is there anything in particular you might just want to share with them? Well, I think first you have to be in love with sound, really in love with it, <laughs> so that you're willing to sacrifice a lot uh, because it does require a lot of sacrifice, even after you've been doing it for 20 or 30 years. I think it is still true that the best way to get involved is to find somebody to apprentice to. And there's no, unfortunately, no magical way to do that. It requires a lot of persistence and a little bit of luck. It's I'm always in favor of pe people getting the broadest possible education. So I, I think it's great to go to college and study whatever it is you want to study in college uh, or go to film school, you know, get a degree. But simply having a piece of paper will not get you into the movie business. Uh, in fact, uh, nobody who's likely to hire you in any part of the entertainment industry, as far as I know, cares at all whether you went to college or what college you went to or what grades you made. All they really care about is whether you can do what they want you to do, ranging from you know, going to get coffee to uh, you know, editing a film. And so the trick is to find some way to learn the nuts and bolts of whatever craft it is you're interested in enough and be persistent enough and hardworking enough and resilient enough because you're going to encounter a lot of, of uh, polite turndowns and disappointments and minor failures and you just have to want it enough to keep coming back for more. Uh, you have to have all of that to really stand much of a chance of making it through Alice's looking glass. <laughs> and I want to commend you on that too, because just hearing your story, I think it takes so much grit and determination, really. I mean, you you said for a year you were knocking on doors and then finally, you know, Walter gave you a chance. And I think that really kind of speaks volumes and you're so humble. Your story is amazing. And I really appreciate your honesty about what it takes because it is hard and rejection does suck, but here you are and you've made it. And I think that's the difference between someone who's going to make it and someone who isn't going to. It's that determination. It's that passion. And you could clearly hear that you have it. So I want to say thank you for sharing that with our listeners. Thank you. Absolutely. And then our last question, although I'm going to reserve the right to maybe at some point in the future call you back to the courtroom and because you told us some wonderful stories about um, George, et cetera, getting into the business along with uh, other people. But uh, if you could go back in time, that is you get in the time machine and go back to when you're first starting out, is there any advice you'd give yourself then that you that might be germane, like, gosh, I wish I had known that then. And sometimes people say, yes, 
other people say, no, nah, you know, I've done, it, it is what it was. So I'm just, just curious if there's anything you would tell yourself, younger self. I think there are probably a lot of things. <laughs> but the first thing that occurs to me is uh, to value uh, accidents and, and mistakes. I think uh, that's where the most creative stuff happens. Um, you know, people who don't know much about art and, you know, let's face it, what we do in, in movies is art. People who don't know much about art think that the way art happens is somebody has a grand vision of whatever it is that they want to do, a novel they want to write or a painting that they want to do or a song they want to write. And then the act of producing the art is just a kind of perfunctory step-by-step process of using the techniques you know. Well, in fact, the way that almost all really interesting art happens is that the so-called grand vision gets abandoned pretty quickly when you actually start doing it. And it's the things that you discover while you're doing it that really turn it into something interesting. And I think if I had known that earlier, I might have done more interesting work. I might have been less frustrated. Made more mistakes. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously you don't want to make nothing but mistakes. But the trick is to make plenty of mistakes as early as possible when they're as cheap as possible. (laughs) So those inform you for the end of the project when you really need to deliver and and not be making many mistakes. Uh, but, but I think that's the most important thing I've learned. We're all about, I don't know whether anybody ever really creates anything. I think what you do is you edit the world. You edit your experience. You, you're open to interesting things that happen and making interesting twists on them so that you do put your personality and your creativity into it, but it's in a way, it's all borrowed material. You're borrowing on things other people have done, ideas other people have had, objects and experiences that you find in the real world. And that's what's fun. Beautiful. That's that's fantastic. That was my phone. That, that was fantastic. And, and Randy, I just want to say both professionally and personally, uh, how much it means to me to have you take your time to talk to us in the audience uh, because truly, you know, you hear hackneyed phrases, but you are an inspiration to many people because you really, you you care and you're a good person. And I think that's a fabulous thing. And I think that's something that we need to continue, you know, because I will be passing the mantle off at some point, not right away, but I would like to see that, you know, people that are passionate about what they do and yet care about other people and want to hold them up. Thank you very much. I certainly feel the same way about you. (laughs) You've had such an amazing career. Uh, When I was working on not the right scuff, but the right stuff, (laughs) you were working on Terms of Endearment, among other projects that year, 1983. And Terms of Endearment was nominated for sound for the the following year's Oscars, along with the right stuff. And uh, I remember uh, standing there with some of your compatriots on terms of endearment. And I was lucky that the right stuff won the award, but uh, those were the good old days indeed. Right. Well, well, we we wish you many continued more good new days. And uh, again, thank you, Randy Tom. Thank you.
And then again, Randy, is there any place we can go to find out more about you besides IMDb? Well, I do have a sound design blog. It's a Randy Tom blog at wordpress.com. And I just talk about all things sound design and mixing and sound editing and Foley, etc. So I encourage you to, to go to that site. Well, we will definitely uh, put that link up within the right scuff. And again, thank you, Randy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Right Scuff podcast. If you liked it, be sure to subscribe to our iTunes and YouTube and give us five stars or like our videos. We'll see you in our next episode. <laughs>